1: Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbera, and the thousands of people past and present who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar.
0: Thank you, Chris Anthony, and I'm very, very privileged to have as our guest this week a person who is responsible for some of the finest, funniest and most memorable and eternally fun animation shows and some theatrical stuff, both for Hanna-Barbera and for Warner Brothers. And we'll get into all of that when we start talking. But first, I just want to welcome the multi-talented Tom Ruger.
1: Thanks, Greg. I'm thrilled to be here. And we're going to talk about Hanna-Barbera today, which I'm very excited about.
0: I always felt like as if I saw the name Tom Ruger on a title card, it's like, this is going to be fun. It's going to be a little quirky, it's going to be funny. And if I saw the name at the end, it's like, that's why it was so fun and quirky and funny. And there are shows that Hanna-Barbera did when you got in that I, and we've had John Semper Jr. on, that with writers like him and creative people like you, kind of turned some of these shows on their ear and they actually got even more entertaining. What I'd like to do before we get into those shows though, is I really would love for you to talk about your background, you know, did you love these cartoons as a kid, and then how you got into the business?
1: Sure. I can tell you for sure that when I was a kid, uh, I was very much hooked on the Hanna-Barbera shows. They're probably, uh, definitely either first, second, or third names that I knew in the cartoon world. I mean, I knew Walt Disney, but I knew Hanna-Barbera because uh, when I was maybe four or five, the Huckleberry Hound show came on and I was totally devoted to that and to Yogi and uh, quick draw. I used to uh, lay down on the floor in front of the TV with my crayons and paper. And I would just, as I was watching, I would draw Huck. I would draw Yogi. My parents would come in. Oh, look at that. Where'd you trace that from? I said, I didn't trace it. I drew it when I was watching. So they gave me more crayons and paper. So I really, I, I really loved those shows. And then Flintstones came along, Jetsons, Top Cat. I mean, these shows really hit me where I lived. So uh, when I went to college, I I didn't know what I was going to do in my life. They put some money aside to make films. Yeah. I applied for this grant. I received it, and I made an animated film in college. I took that and went out to L.A. after college with the hope of landing a job. And I took my portfolio, and I wasn't really... I didn't have a deep portfolio, but I left it at Bakshi's. Then I started calling up all the different studios in town. I had a, like a, a set of slides for like my backup portfolio. I called up Hanna-Barbera. They said, who would you like to speak to? And I, I was in a phone booth out front of my motel on Sunset Boulevard. It was a dump. I didn't have a lot of money. And this particular phone booth was controlled by several women who uh, would receive calls there and go out on their their sort of uh, missions. I mean, they, they were women of the night, and they did not want me to tie up their phone booths, so I had to make these calls pretty quickly. So I called Hanna-Barbera. They said, who do you want to talk to? I said, uh, I didn't know Anyway, I said, Bill Hanna. And they connected me to Bill Hanna's office, and I talked to the secretary, and I said, I'm, I'm Tom Ruger. I'm from, in from New Jersey, and I'm an animator, and I'm looking for work. And she said, "Well, uh, let me take your number. Uh, if Mr. Hannah wants to speak to you, I'll give him the message." And so I gave him the phone booth number, which back then the phone booth number was right there on the dial. Uh-huh. And then I went back to my room. But before I went back to my little dingy hotel room to look up other companies, I said to the women there, "I said, would you, if there's a phone call for Tom Ruger, would you come to room six and knock on the door?" And they said, "Go away. You know, we got we got business to tend to here." But anyway, two hours later, I get a knock on the door, and it's one of these fine women, and she says, "Are you Tom Ruger?" I said, "Yeah." There's a phone call. Hurry up! I'm expecting an important call. Nah. So I get on. Uh, I said, "This is Tom Ruger," and there's a hold for Bill Hanna. Wow. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to Bill Hanna on a cold call, and he said, "Ah, this is Bill Hanna." I said, uh, "Mr. Hanna, I'm in from New Jersey. I'm Tom Ruger. I'm an animator. You're an animator? Yes. Get right over here. We're really busy." He hangs up the phone. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, wow. It's
0: like out of a movie, you know,
1: <laughs> and I got lost getting over there, but I got over there and I all I had were my slides and I had a real film that I made my college movie. I wanted to show it to him. That was platypus but, duck. Was that? Yes. One? Platypus duck. It was 16 millimeter. And he said, well, you know, you're in Hollywood now, kid. We don't run 16 millimeter. We got 35 millimeter projectors. I can't look at that. I, I, I have no projector. He said, Oh, well, here are my slides and they where's your portfolio? It's on slides. And he's holding these slides up to the <laughs> light of the window. He says, What is that? Oh, that that's a dog. That's not a dog where I come from. But uh he said, Okay, here's the deal. I'll give you a, a one-month trial period as an assistant animator. You report tomorrow. Uh, we're so busy. I mean, we're we're basically they were hiring anyone that could hold a pencil. They had like a hundred half hours of animation they had to make for the fall. This was June. So they needed everybody they could get. Anyway, I somehow survived that month trial period. I I would take my work home. Uh, I mean, it was just, I I worked 20 hours a day to get the footage Mm -hmm. because it was all judged on how much footage you could turn out as an assistant animator. What you're doing is you're you're doing the in-betweens for the animator. You're doing the cleanup Mm -hmm. on the extremes and you're doing all the in-betweens. According to the animator's count, you'd go to, like, Dave Tendler, who's animating animator, and Volus Jones, and, and then you'd go back to your desk and do all the in-betweens. They would review it. And some people were great at this. They were churning out, you know, 50 feet a week. Mm-hmm. And I was, like, coming in with, like, six feet. <laughs> so I would take it home, try to get my count up, but it was tough. So about two months later, I, I've survived. I'm there about 9 p.m thinking about going home, but I'm getting a coffee and literally like bump into Bill Hanna in the hallway. And he's going down the corridor, you know, paging through his clipboard. He, he worked tirelessly and he had everything at the studio was on this clipboard. And I said, Oh, Mr. Hanna, I just want to thank you for this opportunity. I've survived uh, the month capacity as an assistant animator. And I I really uh, thank you for this opportunity. And he looks at me, stares at me for a minute and he says, Ruger, right? Yeah. Yes. And he starts flipping through the clipboard and he finds me and he he looks up at me and says, get your footage up. (laughs) And that was the end of that conversation.
0: It's like that line in Network, crusty but benign.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a wonderful man. He really I I loved him. I worked on uh, Godzilla Power Hour Mm -hmm. and Jenna of the Jungle was uh, the first day I was there. And uh, let's see casper they had a casper show they had a scooby show they had super friends the first one i animated on was the new fred and barney show so within six months seven eight months i became an animator mm-hmm. again because they needed to churn this stuff out i had buddies there charlie howe and Morrow, and rich coleman just really great people there is a great crew of animators i mean like i said dave tendler was he had worked on the popeyes yeah uh, and 30s. I mean, there are just so many great animators and artists there. So I worked as an animator and assistant animator for two years there, and then they started sending stuff overseas, and I saw the writing on the wall, and I was certainly not one of the better animators. So I thought, well, I would lay me off. (laughs) If we're sending stuff overseas, I'd get rid of me. So I went and I got a job at Filmation Writing, and I did that for two years. Then I came back This time, rather than Bill Hanna hiring me, Joe Barbera hired me. Uh And that interview was fascinating because I went in. So you go into Joe Barbera's office and it's a beautifully furnished office. It's sort of dark. And it's a little bit like the scene from the Godfather where we, Godfather, (laughs) I need a favor. You know, you're almost kissing his ring and he's sitting there. He said, all right, come on in, Tom. So Tom, right? Yeah, yes, yes, Mr. Barbera. Call me Joe. Call me Joe. Uh listen i 'm working on an idea I, 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 I want to get what you, I want to hear what you think about this idea, so what he then proceeds to tell me is shot for shot the very first yogi bear cartoon he basically that 's what he describes uh, it's the one where yogi's trying to get out of the jellystone park and escape. This was no. called yogi Bear's big Break Yes. Right? Kenny Muse animated it so Joe bear is Telling me, word for word, he's like, "Hey, I gotta get out of here, boo boo." He's doing the voices, "Hey, yogi, you know what the you won't let you know? I'll get out myself." Wow, <laughs> how and, cool! And, and, and he's saying, and yogi can't stand it because these cars keep coming through, and and all he hears is, "Look, look, at, the look at the bears! Look at the bears! At the bears!" The bears. <laughs> so he's telling me this, and in my head, I'm thinking, "Wait, I've seen this cartoon. What he's describing this cartoon?" And and I'm I'm laughing along with parts of it. And he said, so what do you think of that cartoon? I said, I think that's a great cartoon, Joe. He says, good, you're hired. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. So he sort of wanted to see what kind of an audience I might be. So I moved in. Uh, it was very crowded, very busy there. I shared an office with Hank Saroyan, mm-hmm. who was, uh, I think, doing some Scooby at that time. The first thing they had me do is help develop a show called, uh, write the Bible for a show called The Gary Coleman Show.
0: Oh, and he was an angel. Yeah.
1: He was an angel. LeBeau. very good. So I worked on that. Then within a few days, they had me working on premises for something called Shirt Tales, Mm -hmm. which was run by a funny guy named Bob Ogle. So that was the first few days of writing there.
0: Shirt Tales was an interesting show because it was Hallmark. One of those uh, adorable character shows, like I like to call them. And they were these cute animals, but I think they lived in like
1: Central Park and there was bogey. That's right. And they would have, from scene to scene, they would have different things written on their shirts. Yeah. This made the show literally internationally worthless.
0: Yeah, because you can't translate it. That's right.
1: Yeah. They started like saying, don't put anything on their shirts. <laughs> <laughs> but they're called shirt till. I know they are, but yeah, we're not going to do it. I just want to go back to the one of the things about animating at Hanna-Barbera. We had a stock system. Vicky Casper, a wonderful person, was in charge of our stock system. So if you're working on Scooby or working on Super Friends or even Casper, basically Fred and Barn- I mean, if you wanted Scooby to scramble and run off scene, which I think if anyone watched Scooby uh, back then, he did maybe three times a show. hmm uh, you would go into the stock room and Vicki Casper would show you the different Scooby Scrambles that have already been animated and you could take them. And that's one way to drive your footage up. Did
0: they require, because at Filmation, they, they sort of perfected that you had only so many things that you couldn't do out of the stock system. You had, <laughs>
1: <you know, laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, I worked at Filmation and like they said, the Gilligan's Planet, be I mean, a close up on Gilligan and he'd be looking... To the right and say, Hey, Skipper, uh, what are you doing? And you heard Skipper over, I'm climbing this coconut tree, Gilligan. Hey, watch out for that coconut. Boom. Are you okay, Skipper? Ow. Uh, <laughs> you'd never see any of it. Right. That's right. It. it would just be on Gilligan's head. <laughs> this was not that kind of stock system, fortunately.
0: Hanna-Barbera had a little bit, I think that's one of the reasons Filmation sometimes could outbid them, because they would maybe go $10,000 less on budgets and stuff, because they did that. Hanna-Barbera had had higher budgets, as limited as the animation was.
1: Yeah, they definitely did. And they also had more stuff. They were just making a lot of different shows. Like I said, I did the Gary Coleman show, then Shirt Tales, and Dukes of Hazard, The Dukes. The Dukes. And uh, I actually liked that because they had their real voices from the show, mm-hmm. like uh, Boss Hogg. And uh, it was fun to write. It was fun to record. I remember going to the recording section and actually laughing at because Boss Hogg had to say, The Blue Wazoo. Basically, I took the plot of a Charade with the stamps, and it was The Dukes do du Perry. Oh, so that- then uh, Hank Saroyan was assigned story editing job on Scooby, but he had... Bigger fish to fry. And he had other things he wanted to do. And he said, would you like to story edit Scooby? Because he had read some of the stuff I've written. He said, you'd be great. And I said, I've never seen a Scooby. And I hadn't. It was 1980. Mm -hmm. So he had been on for, uh, what, 11 years. Not
0: since 69. Yeah. So you hadn't had the pleasure.
1: No, I, I was in school and I never did it. So that weekend, I took home these huge, clunky three-quarter-inch cassettes. I remember, yeah, Like (laughs) like, They're like the size of a Bible. (laughs) And uh, I brought home the giant three-quarter-inch machine. They let me take it home, and I watched just dozens of Scooby. As I did, I wrote down things I thought were funny and catchphrases and different personality quirks. And then Monday, I started writing something called No Sharking Zone. Mm-hmm. So that was my first Scooby script. And on the strength of that, I got, I became the story editor of Scooby, having known Scooby for three days, you know, a bit four days. Um, well,
0: you know, it's a crash course. It's a Scooby crash course. Someday they'll be teaching it in college.
1: <laughs> so, uh, that became my main job for several years there at Hanna-Barbera. I did, uh, Pound puppies. Let's see, uh, Yogi's treasure hunt. See, I love that.
0: That I love. Me too.
1: Now that was a fun job. Uh, John Luden and I, Earl Cress. Yes. Uh, Charlie Howe, Gordon Bressette. We all we loved that show. We loved the original characters. I mean, yeah. those are the characters we grew up with. Dawes Butler was coming in every week, recording, and wow. we'd meet with Dawes, and he would give us little tips on what characters should be saying because we put some fairly straight lines in he would say well no he wouldn't say it like that i had a snooper and blabber scene where evidently blab and dawes would say no no he would say evidentially yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah
1: malaprops yeah snagglepuss
0: uh, did that too yeah that was a hallmark
1: yes exit Dades left with vigor with I don't know. I mean, there are so many things that Dawes improved.
0: There's a line on one of the albums where Snagopus says "realize" instead of "realize." I can't <laughs> say it any other way to this day.
1: Realize—that's <laughs> ah, very good. So Dawes would stop by. Luden and I had this office that we shared, right by the entrance way and exit way, right past reception. So Dawes would come in like before the sessions and go over the scripts with us. I mean, it was just like a crash course in voice work by the master himself. So mm-hmm. we love that. Also, Paul Winchell provided the voice for a Dastardly. Yeah. And Dastardly was the villain in Yogi's Treasure Hunt.
0: Arnold Stang was giving them the assignments as Top Cat.
1: Arnold was calling it in from New York.
0: Yeah, he was afraid of
1: flying. But Winchell was there every week. And after each session, I don't know... He would come in to our office and, hey, guys, that was a great script today. Hey, and he would sit down and this man, you know, one of the greats of that era. I mean, he was the greatest ventriloquist and he made show after show. He made all sorts. So he had all these show ideas and he would pitch these ideas to us like we were the network or like (laughs) like we knew something. And they would be very entertaining. He would pitch them and maybe we can get going on that next time. I said, oh, okay. John Luden, who was a wise ass, hilarious person, he would crack. He, and he did things like this just to crack me up. So Paul Winchell would leave, and when he was well away and past a couple doors, Luden went out in the hall and started yelling down the hall, "It's over, Winchell! It's over!" <laughs> Aww.
0: <laughs> You know, that, I mean, it was just to amuse me. But you know, there's a lot of that, and all I can say is, I quote Tom Bosley, "That's Hollywood."
1: Oh yeah, because yeah. that's yeah, you know, I mean, there's
0: people trying to pitch. I saw Stan Freeberg doing that for years. Later, he's pitching, got this idea, you know, meeting with people. Let's let's make it happen.
1: And I now know what that's like. I mean, I was the thirty year old back then, but now I'm uh, <laughs> now I'm Winchell. So at that point, I had met Luden, Charlie Howe. I mean, these were the people I really counted on, Earl Crest. Because I was story editing these things, and those guys really were crucial in the quality because they were all genuinely, they knew the characters, and they were funny.
0: Yeah. Um, there are some so- really great episodes of that. The Greed Monster... That's oh, like yeah. Roald Dahl wrote it. It's really oh. strange. That's a great oh, exactly. one.
1: I and, wrote that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then there's
0: yeah. another one, and I don't know if you did this, it Earl, where the theme songs, the original theme oh, songs. Oh, yes.
1: Uh, Ludin, I think that's the credit for that, but I'm taking credit of getting the theme songs in there because I had to go through Paul Decourt and I said, let me use these uh, and put them in. And they are the original tracks. Yes, they are. Unfortunately, they're not the original animation. Yeah, so we did the quick draw, we did the Yogi, and we did uh, the Huck theme songs. Basically, we brought them all together, mm-hmm. and I think that was like our origin story. Yeah, <laughs> so we had uh, great people there. Paul Decourt, like I said, was the music guy. Hoyt Curtin wrote the music, but Paul Decourt was yeah. the he's the music, a music supervisor. supervisor. Yeah, he was, and the- he passed away way too young. We had two other people that passed away about that time when I was there, and it was well. One was Bob Ogle. So Bob Ogle had made many shows, Mm and he was doing Shirt Tales at that point. And I remember one day I was in there, and one of my premises got through to the network, very tough network person.
0: NBC, yeah.
1: Yeah, she'd be at at the meetings, and I'm bored, you know, or I have problems with this. So I had written a Shirt Tales premise that got through, and she loved it. And Bob Ogle brought me in like He was, you know the son who had returned from the war. Oh my God, this is the greatest thing. <laughs> Ruger, you're going to do all these now. Oh, this is such a relief for us that we got one through. Oh, this is great. So anyway, so here's the thing about Bob Ogle. He and the older group, not all of them, but they would go to lunch at the Beverly Garland Hotel, which was a Howard Johnson's, not mm-hmm. far from the studio, mm-hmm. and they would drink their lunch. So they would be pussycats in the morning, but after lunch, Bob Ogle, you didn't want to meet him afterwards. Sometimes
0: that yeah. was the effect. I've worked with people like that. It made them cranky.
1: So they got the network notes on my script after lunch, and they called me in the office, and Bob Ogle just ripped into me. Ruger, you stink. You're a lousy writer. Get out of here. And it was just, like, brutal. Yeah. Now, he died without warning. I mean, he, like, dropped dead. Dave Teju did the lunches also. I think the drinking's not a good thing. He came back from a lunch one day and died in the restroom. Oh my. So there was some dramatic stuff going on. So we were making these shows, Yogi's Treasure Hunt, Scooby and Scrappy Doo, and the Scooby Doo Mysteries. The main title sequences of some of these shows were, I mean, compared to other shows' main titles, they were really bad. Artly and Artie then did some, and they were good. And then Mitch Shower did one. It was great. So I occasionally would complain, not necessarily about the main title, but about the animation coming through on the Scooby. I remember we did Nutcracker Scoob.
0: Yes, and I have that whole, on. I got it on VHS.
1: <laughs> right. But the whole thing is done almost proscenium arts. The mm-hmm. whole episode, I don't think there's a close-up in the whole episode. It's So I think George Singer was the producer. Kay Wright wasn't involved on this one. And I said, George, look at the. I, I was allowed at that point because I could draw to look at the board. I said, this is all long shots. I said, we got to fix this. So George didn't like getting notes from the writer. So the next thing I know, a guy who, again, I mean, this guy was one of the great animators of the 30s, Bernie Wolf. Mm-hmm. He's standing in my door, and I've never met him before. This is the first time i met him. It was literally like a hitman. I standing in the door I said, you're Ruger, right? Uh yeah. George says, uh, you're causing problems. <laughs> Ooh. I said, wait, who are you? Never <laughs> never mind who I am. <laughs> I'm a <laughs> friend. Mind. Just a friend. <laughs> never mind who I am. Just you do your writing. You leave the drawing to us. I don't want to hear anything about you anymore. Bernie Wolf, man, what a character. <laughs> anyway, I then started lobbying to get more involved so that visually it wouldn't be so rotten. So I got involved with Mitch Schauer, who was great because he's a producer and he's an artist and he knows what he's doing. So he did the first Pound Puppies special, which looked interesting and good. And then we did 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. Yes. Mitch was the producer and basically the creator of that whole concept. And he controlled the visuals. And then we got Paul Decourt giving us pretty good music. That show visually, I think, was an improvement. And Vincent Price was cool. That was a real coup to get him. I do want to ask about one thing. I mean, you mentioned the
0: main titles, and musically, one of the cool things about Yogi's Treasure Hunt is, and it was the same basic theme for the Fantastic World Sunday block, it was sung by Scatman Crothers. So that was kind of cool.
1: Oh, yeah. Want to get a riddle? Want to get a clue? Uh, It's up to you, uh, Scatman Crothers. I think that inspired maybe the uh, the title song for A Pup Named Scooby-Doo had a similar feel to it. Yeah. Where, you know, that was the first thing I produced there at Hanna-Barbera. And that's where we got an acapella group, three women who did all sort of the background music. They would go, and we had this, that was the pulse of the show. It was mm-hmm. sort of like out of a uh, little shop of horrors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was cool. That was very cool. That was before 13 Ghosts, wasn't it?
1: No, 13 Ghosts. uh, Mitch Shower and I worked on 13 Ghosts. And then we got a lot of letters from, well, I don't know exactly from whom, but they complained that uh, Scooby was now dealing with the supernatural, Mm -hmm. as opposed to prior to that, Scooby had just dealt with villains who were wearing masks. It was the first time,
0: I guess, that it wasn't the direct-to-videos. That was the first time that what was happening was real.
1: So I think that hurt our renewal. I think we would have been renewed if we hadn't gotten cranky letters. So then Scooby was off for a year. We were doing Pound Puppies, again, with Ludin, Charlie, and Earl, and Wayne Katz. Really funny people. And that was with uh, Jenny Trias and Amy Simon and Squire Rushnell at ABC. Yeah. So after a year of Scooby being off, Jenny came to me and said, we need Scooby back on. So what what do you want to do? And so we went with the approach that became a Pup Named Scooby-Doo. We got Gerald's and some of our other key artists did younger versions of the gang. And it was the first time I had a chance to produce a show at Hanna-Barbera. So uh, that was fun. Pup Named Um,
0: Scooby-Doo also kind of gave some quirks to Fred and Velma and Daphne that they really didn't have in the early series.
1: Yeah, I extrapolated sort of from the early series. I tried to imagine what they might have been like, you know. I think Daphne was rich. Yes. I'm pretty sure.
0: She supposedly financed why they were able to do this, from what I understand.
1: Yes. We definitely milked all the possibilities. We had Daphne be very much go-go boots. We made it a a period (laughs) piece from the 60s. We had Freddie be sort of a conspiracy theorist and sort of a knucklehead. I figure he had to be a knucklehead because he was wearing an ascot. <laughs> he was like, he was like 11 or 12 years old wearing an ascot. Hat. Yeah. Velma, I originally wanted her to say only the word jinkies. Uh, I fought for that. You were ahead of your time because that's what Groot does. Yeah. Groot. Exactly. Jinkies. We had Casey and Don Messick doing their voices. Initially, I think the first couple of episodes we pitched them, but then. They naturally are, are so good that they pitch themselves eventually. Great voice actors. John Dedney doing the music. Yeah. He did all, all mm-hmm. those romps, the mm-hmm. Scooby romps, which I, I think are hilarious. But suddenly they're being chased and suddenly they break into, you, you know, Peanuts <laughs> Charlie Brown <laughs> dances and things like that.
0: Oh, those were great. That was, like you said, you zeroed in on the things that made
1: it fun. That was the goal.
0: And now, folks, please stay with us for part two of our visit with Tom Ruger. He's going to be telling us about his career with Huckleberry Hound, Steven Spielberg, and many more here on the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara.